Even from the time I was a little kid, I've always been hustling to get some money. Like, look at this guy right here. So before I was Pastor Jim, the youth and kids pastor here at Living Word, I was little Jimmy in the coat of many colors. And as you can tell, with style like that, that doesn't come cheap. You need some money, you need some dough. And so I was all about the money, even as a little kid. And I still remember the first job I ever had. I was four or five years old, and my dad comes up to me, and he says, I've got a job for you, Jimmy. Apparently, a bird had flown into our basement, hit the wall, and died. And so my dad looks at me and says, Jimmy, I will give you $10 if you get that bird out of the basement, because he didn't want to deal with it. So it's like, all right, I got this. So I suited up and I put on my Superman pajamas. I had knee pads on. This is a true story. Had my little Ninja Turtle helmet and then tied a jump rope around me. I don't know what that was for, but just in case I was prepared. And so I go there and then this bird does not stand a chance. Little Jimmy has come to take care of it. I'm going to earn this 10 bucks. I am good to go. But there was one little problem. The dead bird wasn't actually dead the bird had flown into the wall and like knocked itself out or something. And at the exact moment I bent over to pick it up, the bird raises from the dead, flies and smacks me right in the face and then flies out the door. I was traumatized. I'm pretty sure I wet my pants. I fell on the floor crying. And the worst thing is to this day, my dad has never given me that $10 he promised me. I walked away with a lifetime of oranthobia, which is the fear of birds and zero dollars. I flinch for the last 21 years. I'll flinch any time a bird flies by, yet I still have not received the cash. I'm not bitter. I'm not bitter. My dad was in town and bought me dinner, which was probably more than $10, but I still want the 10 exact dollars from that, that day. But what that experience made me afraid of birds, and I do, I, I'm really being vulnerable with you today, letting you know this fear of mine. I've been afraid of birds since I was like four or five years old. And, but it didn't make me afraid of money. I've still always been really into money. I was one of those kids that before I could make money, money was candy, and I would get the Easter basket and have all this candy. And then at Christmas, I would eat my last piece of Easter candy from the previous time. I was always a saver, always trying to find odd jobs to make money. I would shovel snow, I would do, I would uh, rake leaves, I would do whatever I could to have some money. And even to this day, I find myself often just overly being consumed with thinking about money. I worry about, will I have enough? Will we have enough to pay for this? I think about, um, what are we going to do? How can I save this money? And how, now as I'm getting older, how can I invest this money to make sure that I'll have enough when I eventually retire? Yeah, I'm 26, already thinking about that. Because money tends to be on my mind. And I think the reason that this is true is because there's something that I struggle with and something that I believe, which I think many of you guys believe here today, and that is if we just had enough money, our life would be perfect. I mean, who here, who here would be honest who, and say that you've thought that before? Or I, and, and be honest with yourself. No one here has ever sat, sat and thought, man, I really wish I was poor, I really wish they would deduct some money out of my paycheck this week. No one thinks that. We all have in our mind the idea that if we just had a little more, our lives would be better. Think through with you. Have you ever asked yourself, if I had this amount of money, all my stress would go away? Have you ever thought with more money, I would be free? Does money, does the pursuit of money lead us to freedom? Does the pursuit of money lead us to happiness? 
Well, we're going to take a look at a guy today. A, a guy, um, has anyone seen the movie, or sorry, the TV show Shark Tank? Anyone seen that show? For those of you who don't know, it is a show where all these billionaires lend money to other people so that they can try and make money. And one of the guys in that show is named Kevin O'Leary, and he's a billionaire from Canada, and he has tons of money, and he truly believes that the more money you have, the happier you'll be. He truly believes that the pursuit of money leads to happiness. So after, after being fired, Kevin O'Leary decides that nothing will have control of his life ever again. And so the way he decides that he will forever have control of his life, the way that he can take hold in and be in charge of his own happiness is to pursue money. And he becomes really good at pursuing money. He becomes, uh, I think he said he had uh, multiple billions of dollars. And he says that money provides him freedom. Money provides him inner peace. But in the same breath, what I thought, thought, thought was interesting, in the same breath that he says money has given him freedom, he'll also say money does rule my life. How can you be free but have something rule over you? It's interesting as I looked at his story. And he says things by his own description that money doesn't have feelings and that money doesn't care, yet that's the thing he's chosen to make his life about. Or I would say that's the thing he's chosen to worship, something that doesn't care for him, something that doesn't have feelings. He says in another interview that he wakes up every morning to make more money. But again, has money actually freed him? Or has it just changed the thing that's enslaved him? Is money providing meaning to his life? Is money giving him freedom? Or is money needing him leaving something more? Mankind's search for meaning is exactly what the book of Ecclesiastes, which is found in your Bible, talks about and digs into is our desire to find something that will give our life meaning. And in this story is a true account of a king where he has access to everything yet has nothing at all. And so he feels this, this lack of inner peace and begins to search through and try all kinds of different things to find something that would finally give meaning to his life. And so he goes and he does some crazy, ridiculous, and just, uh, some, depending on your aspect, horrible things where he just parties in a way that would make someone like Miley Cyrus or Charlie Sheen seem more like someone like Mother Teresa and Billy Graham. That's how hard this guy partied. I talked about this guy in youth group, and I said, he is the biggest partier to have ever lived. And so we look at his story, and we see at first that he starts to, to try to find meaning by having these crazy parties. And it says that he got his friends and would have these drunken parties and would pursue meaning in parties. Yet after the end of the parties, he found that was ultimately meaningless. So then he goes and he, gets, he finds the world's most beautiful women and has casual sex with the most beautiful women in the world. And at the end of the day, he wakes up and says himself, everything was meaningless. So when that doesn't work, he goes and he hires the greatest entertainers in the world, the greatest entertainers that money can buy. And he gets them to come to his palace and have a private show for him where he's got live entertainment. Again, the best entertainment in the world. And after viewing these shows, he ultimately comes to the conclusion that everything is meaningless. So he, he turns in his party hat for his business suit and he suits up and he tries to just build and make these great things. And he builds a great kingdom, he builds great gardens and he does all of this. And yet once again, he finds that it's meaningless. 
This king jumps from thing to thing to thing to thing. And each thing that he tries, he comes to the same conclusion. Everything is meaningless. So finally, he has one last ditch effort to find something that can give his life eternal meaning. He turns to the one thing that I think many of us, we think if we had this one thing, it would give us meaning, security, freedom, and peace. He makes his life about money. He thinks surely money will be the thing that will give me happiness. And after years of pursuing the God of money, here's what he discovers. He says this, he says, those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. Money is never enough. So this king, after years of of worshiping the God of money, discovers that money is a short-lived God. The effect, when you worship God and your life is about money, you will never have enough money. You will always need more. And the things that you get from money will, will grow old and will no longer give you the joy that they once did. Who here has a smartphone? Raise your hand if you have a smartphone. All right, most of you here. Who here is just as excited today about their phone as the day they first got it? Three people. Woo! You're better, you're better people than me. I, I remember when I got my first smart... Did you say that's not hard? Oh, oh you got your phone yesterday. That shouldn't count. So I, I remember when I got my first smartphone. It was the iPhone 4. And I, this is not the iPhone 4, it's a newer model, but I got, my first smartphone was the iPhone 4, and I had waited four long years to go from my little flip phone to a smartphone. And when I finally got the phone, I just loved it. I, it was beautiful to me. Like some people just really love their children. I really love my phone. It was my baby. It was the coolest thing ever until two months later, Apple did the worst thing they possibly could have done to me. They released the stinking iPhone 4S. And this phone that was the newest model became last year's model. And I was so mad at myself, like, why didn't I just wait for two more months? What is two months and four years? I could have had the newest phone. Has that happened to anyone ever? You buy the new phone and then two months later, it's the old phone? It was so frustrating. Every time I would look at my phone, I'd be like, you're so dumb. Why did you not just wait? The thing that brought me so much joy just two months later was the thing that constantly annoyed me. Isn't it funny how quickly the things we buy become old? The things that we quickly buy that once, or the things that we buy that once gave us joy now are a source of annoyance. The car that you were in love with 10 years ago is now your 10-year-old car that you can't wait to get rid of. The clothes that you bought last year are now old and out of style. The clothes that you bought 20 years ago, if you're still wearing them, they're old and out of style. But money is such a short-lived God. The things we purchase ultimately, the things that we purchase ultimately become old and we need more money to get more things to have the same amount of joy. And what's What's also interesting is uh, secular researchers, not Christian researchers, have discovered that if you had enough money to just buy new phones all the time, the amount of joy you got by purchasing a phone would diminish. The more money you have, the more money you need to spend to to, to receive the same amount of joy. We know this to be true. Like when you were a little kid and your parents gave you a dollar, you thought you were a millionaire. But now if you find the dollar on the, the street, you're like, Maybe I'll pick it up. Uh, Is it in the snow? You know, you think about it. It's not the same. It's not as exciting. The more money you have, the more money you need to find joy. Money is a short-lived God that always requires more. 
But money doesn't just, isn't just a short-lived God. It's also a God that trickles into the other aspects of our life. This is what the king found out. He said that, um, he said that um, let me see, the more that you have, the more, pe- the more people come to help you spend it. So what good is wealth except perhaps to watch it slip through your fingers? So when your life is about money, it'll begin to affect your relationships. People will use you to get your money or you will use people to get more money. Whenever you worship something, you become more like the thing you worship. And so if you worship the God of money, you'll become more like the God of money. And how was the God of money described? How did Kevin, who has billions of dollars, describe money? He said that money is a God, or he doesn't say God, but he says money is something that has no feelings and doesn't care. And we can really see it in his life, how he treats those people, that he is becoming someone who has no feelings and doesn't care. Earlier in Ecclesiastes, the king notices how there are rich people opposing the poor so that they can get more money. It has made them someone who has no feelings and doesn't care. Money influences our relationships with others, where we will hurt others to get it, or others will hurt us to get access to our money. But money doesn't just affect your relationships. It begins to affect your soul. The king says this. He says, people who work hard sleep well, whether they eat little or much, but the rich seldom get a good night's sleep. There is another serious problem I have seen under the sun. Hoarding riches harms the saver. Money is put into risky investments that turn sour, and everything is lost. In the end, there is nothing left to pass on to one's children. The pursuit of money, when your life is about money, anxiety will begin to fill your life. For those of you who don't have a lot of money, you'll always be worried about what you don't have. And for those of you who are rich and have much money, you'll always be worried about losing what you do have. Money is a God that causes anxiety. The money is a God that causes not a cause, is short-lived. And money is a God that ultimately will be taken away from you. The reason we fear that money might be taken away from us is because ultimately it will. The king's final discovery from his time pursuing money is this, that we all come to the end of our lives as naked and empty-handed as, as on the day we were born. We can't take our riches with us, and this too is a very serious problem. People leave this world no better off than when they came. All their hard work is for nothing, like working for the wind. Throughout their lives, they live under a cloud, frustrated, discouraged, and angry. Ultimately, we come into the world with nothing, and we leave with nothing. There's this really corny story pastors like to tell, and it's probably not a true story. I'm almost sure it's not a true story, but there's this really corny story they like to tell about how there was this rich man who had had all kinds of money. He was a millionaire, billionaire, and he was about to die, and he asked that all his money would be buried with him. And his wife was like, but I want that. So she came up with an interesting plan. And so he's at the, he's at, he, the man finally passes. And the lawyer comes up to his wife and says, I'm sorry, we have to honor his wishes. We have to bury him with all his money. So the wife writes a blank check and throws it in the coffin and says, he can cash his money anytime he wants. Well, obviously, he's not going to cash his check. I have never once seen a dead person cash a check at Citizens Bank. If I did, and if you do, run because the apocalypse is happening. That's not a normal thing, because when we die, we can't take our money with us. Money is a God that um, does not last because you can't take it with you when you pass. Money is such 
a horrible savior. Money is a short-lived God. Money is a God that doesn't care. Money is a God that doesn't have feelings. Money is a God that the type of peace money brings is a type of peace that needs more money to keep that peace. Money, again, is a horrible savior. Now, I'm not going to pretend that being poor is always better than being rich. I'm not going to pretend that money doesn't make some of life easier. And I'm not going to suggest, and I hope you're not getting that I'm saying that you can't be wealthy or that it's sinful to be wealthy. If you're rich, awesome. I'm so happy for you. Um, There's nothing inherently wrong with obtaining money. But if the pursuit of money is the purpose of your life, then you're living a life that is ultimately meaningless. You need a better God to worship than the God of money. You need a God that will fulfill the empty promises of the God of money. What you need is Jesus. See, the pursuit of money brings stress into, onto our life, but we see through the message of Jesus that Jesus actually took on our stress so that we could have rest in him. The money provides short-term happiness, but Jesus provides a happiness that extends beyond death and into an eternal happiness and an eternal joy that we can have with him. Money steals your joy, but the Bible reveals to us, and the gospel message specifically reveals to us, that Jesus doesn't steal your joy, but he actually stole your debt. He stole your punishment for your sin and put it upon himself so that you could experience his joy. Jesus is such a better God than money. Money doesn't care for you, but Jesus cared enough for you to die for you. Jesus is better than the God of money, but not only is Jesus better than the God of money, he has actually experienced all the fears of those who worship money. What is the biggest fear of someone who worships money? That they'll be poor, that they'll be in poverty. And Jesus experienced poverty in an unprecedented way. Jesus became poor in every single way. We see that Jesus came to, left the riches of heaven. Jesus, who is God the Son, left the riches of heaven, came to this earth and lived a sinless life. And while on earth, he came as a poor baby. He was in a poor family in a poor nation. We see that he was even poor in looks. Isaiah talks about how he was homely or ugly, like Jesus could not get a break. I remember in college, we had this assignment where we had to go up to someone and encourage them by telling them how they're like Jesus, just one person a day. I went to a Bible college, and I had a friend named Jesse, and I would go up to him every day and say, the Bible says that Jesus is ugly, and I just want to tell you, you are so like Jesus today. (laughs) He never calls me anymore, and I don't know why. No, I'm just kidding. But seriously, Jesus was poor in every single way, but the main way that we see his poverty is through the cross. On the cross, Jesus became poor in a way that none of us will have to experience, where he took on the unrighteousness of the world. He became poor in righteousness. Now, some of you, that means nothing to you. What does that mean? What that means is he took on the guilt and the shame and the punishment for every sin, everything that we, any person, every man, woman, and child who ever has lived or ever will live, he took on the shame, the guilt, and the punishment of that sin. He became poor for us on the cross as he took on all our sins, the guilt of all our sins. And he became poor in relationship as he had a perfect relationship with God the Father, but On the cross, Jesus exclaims, Father, why have you forsaken me? Where Jesus becomes poor in relationship, where he is completely separated from everyone. Jesus became poor in every single way so that you could become rich in him. 
Jesus died so that you wouldn't have to attach yourself to horrible gods, like the horrible God of money. He died so that we could attach ourselves to the one true God. He died so that you wouldn't have to worship something that is meaningless, but you could find meaning in the one who provides meaning, which is Jesus Christ. Yet I think many of you here today are attached to a horrible Savior. I think many of you here today are worshiping the God of money. Some of you overtly worship it, and we know it because you'll say things like, I'm all about the money. I can't wait to get paid. I'm in it for this raise. Uh, you'll say things like, uh, you'll brag about how many hours you worked or how much money you've made or what car you have. But I think most of us are more subtle in our worship. I think many of us are polytheistic, where we have more than one God. There might be room in our heart for Jesus. There might be room in our heart for something else. But ultimately, there's a section of our affection that is dedicated to money. There's part of our hearts that worships the God of money. For me, I fall into this trap so easily. And so over, over the course of my life, there are a few questions that I ask myself, to, to, I internally ask myself to see, am I worshiping the God of money? And I think maybe these questions would be helpful for you. Some questions I ask myself to see is, if, if uh, the God of money has taken some of my affections, is I'll just ask myself, am I being generous or do I want to hold on to all my wealth? Another question I'll ask myself is, am I constantly worrying about what I do and don't have? Lastly, and this one is such a good indicator that you are worshiping the God of money, is I'll ask myself this, do I feel joy or jealousy when someone gets a new car, a new house, a new possession, a new raise, a better job? Am I happy for them or am I jealous? Ask yourself those questions because I think the answers to those questions will reveal to yourself if you're worshiping the God of money. Now, as I'm talking right now, the Holy Spirit is beginning to work in some of your hearts and you're starting to feel conviction that you are worshiping the God of money. And you might be sitting here thinking, well, how do I stop worshiping this God of money, this God that doesn't compare to Jesus? I want to worship him wholly, but how do I move from worshiping the God of money? I would say the first thing to do is to begin to just dig into the gospel message, to begin to just thank Jesus for his poverty, to pray and just worship him and say, thank you, God, for becoming poor for me, to begin to look at his word and look at all the ways Jesus became poor for you. And then I would say to live out the gospel and do what the gospel reveals always defeats the God of money. Do what the gospel, what Jesus did for us to defeat the God of money in our lives. Be generous. Give. I think nothing beats the God of money more so. One practical thing we can do than to give and be generous. When I was a, a kid, like 10 or 11, I was, I was pretty young. I had already started to become consumed with the God of money. Isn't it funny how quickly our, heart, our young hearts, and I work at, I'm a kid's pastor here, and I see it, your kids' hearts, some of them, I'm like, Dear Jesus, they need you. But it's so funny how quickly our hearts from a very young age are drawn to other saviors other than Jesus. And truly, one of the saviors in my heart was money. I was obsessed with money. And I had earned a bunch of money. I was rich. I think I had like $20. I'd worked so hard for it. I had 20 bucks. But I was a pastor's son, and I felt a little guilty about just like staring at my dollar bills all the time. So I was like, maybe I'll throw a dollar or two in the offering plate. And so I was at service. And I'm there, and, and we're singing, and we're worshiping God. And once again, God the Holy Spirit began to speak to my heart, not in like an audible voice, but just, I just felt him prompting, and he spoke to me and said, 
give everything you had, or give everything in your wallet, which was everything I had. And so I'm like, oh, but I want this money. But the Holy Spirit was just working in my heart and I felt his presence so strong. And I was like, I need to do this. He was, the Holy Spirit was confronting my idol worship, my love of money. And he was working in me. So I went to my dad and I said, dad, I think I need to give everything I have. And what's really cool is God took my, my little gift and he multiplied it. He had, my dad brought me forward and said, and had me share my story. And we took an offering and we were having a guest speaker and we were having a special offering for this guy who was either a missionary. I'm not, I'm not sure exactly who he was, but it was the biggest special offering we had ever taken for a guest speaker. It was cool to see how God had multiplied my gift. But the real thing that, the real thing that was happening in that gift, the real blessing from that giving was the work that God was doing in my heart. See, I thought I was being generous, but Jesus was being generous with me. He saw that even at a young age, he loved me enough at a young age to extend a challenge to me so that I could begin to work to no longer worship a God that would enslave me. Jesus loved me enough to challenge me to give. And I wish I could say, like, from that moment on, I've never worshipped the God of money. But there have been, like, I am so, I get so stubborn with money and so consumed with money that literally God has constantly asked me, give more than you think, give more than you think, give more than you think, to keep me in check because he loves me again, because he cares for me. When I fall into the temptation of loving money, God always challenges me to give more. In Scripture, we see uh, that there is a commandment for believers to give a tithe, which is 10% of your income. And in the New Testament, we're even challenged to give beyond that. And we're challenged to give beyond what we think is reasonable and beyond what we think we can. We're challenged to give, and I think it partly because to support the mission of Jesus, which is to see the world saved. But I think Jesus challenges us to give because he loves us. I think Jesus loves us so much that he doesn't want us to worship a horrible God. He doesn't want us to worship a God that will lead us to a meaningless life. He wants us to worship him. And so he encourages us, he challenges us, and he asks us to give so that we can be, more, uh, we can be with him and experience him. One of the rewards of giving is that it's the easiest way for us to practically defeat the God of money. If you never give, money will always be a God in your life. But on the flip side, as you begin to give, you can begin to defeat the God of money. I want us to just think again, and I want us to just have this perspective, because again, as I said earlier, when we give, we think that we're so excited about our generosity, but we don't take into the fact that as we give, we are being generously blessed by God. Jesus generously gives us the motivation to give by generously giving his life for us. And then Jesus generously blesses us as we give by helping us defeat the God of money in our life. Isn't it amazing? How beautiful is it that our God, through our very act of giving, he also gives to us. Our God is such a generous God. I give because I'm moved by the streaming um, act of generosity Jesus did for me on the cross. I give because I believe he commands it. I give because I am passionate about the mission of Jesus Christ. And I also give because the more I give, the less I worship money. The gospel message reveals to you guys that Jesus became poor in every way so that you could become rich in him. Will you guys today begin to believe the gospel message? Will you begin to live it out today?
Will you begin to believe it more by, by studying it, by worshiping it, by spending time thanking Jesus for his poverty? And will you live out the gospel by being generous yourself? I don't, as we close it up today, I don't have some big giving plan. I don't have envelopes for you to throw your money in. We're not taking an offering. My, my heart isn't to, to get more money. My heart is for you guys to defeat the God of money in your life. My heart is for you guys to live out the gospel message. My heart is for you to know Jesus more. And so this, this coming year in 2016, will this be the year that the gospel has transformed your heart, that the money of, or the God of money will start to die in your life, and that you will begin to live generously for him?